Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the VSuit podcast, the audio-only virtualization podcast that's guaranteed to work, even during a government shutdown. Today we have a very special guest joining myself, Christian and Ed. Few people have their own Starbucks drink, much less one classed as a weapon of mass destruction by the UN. Always entertaining, whether he's talking about paleo cooking or security in the cloud, it's Hoff, better known as Beaker. Hey guys, how are you? Not too bad, not too bad. Welcome to the show and thank you very much for coming on. No worries. So, how are you doing these days? Uh, you've been a little, little bit quieter than usual on Twitter. Uh, is this a bit of family time, or no? It's uh, it's just been it's busy, busy, busy work time. So, uh, it's funny when people say that I've been a little more quiet on, on Twitter and say, "What well, you mean, like less than thirty thousand tweets a day?" I, I suppose that's true. No, I I, I think it's uh, it's a, a self-imposed um, anti-raging. Uh, uh, Constraint that I've uh, placed on myself of late. Where, where's the fun in that? I <laughs> uh, know. My <laughs> wife says I get. My wife says Twitter makes me angry, and she's. I, I'm, I'm not sure. It's, I'm not sure the order's right, but that's fine. <laughs> so. There's a case of there's somebody wrong on the internet somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Excellent. So, um, you know, people that uh, if they don't follow you on Twitter, sort of at, at Beaker, then they really should be kicking themselves relatively hard. Um, because, you know, as one of the more prolific security uh, personalities, as it were, on, on Twitter, um, you very much come across as sort of the antithesis of, of the security stereotype. Um, you know, you, you sort of, you know, quite uh, positive towards things and very much, you know, the uh, opposite of the Dilbert character, Mordak, preventer of IT. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's def def definitely uh, a compliment. But do you, do you think security sort of has had the requirement to sort of get a little bit of PR behind it? Um, potentially, well, as you know, um, corporations have looked, you know, moving towards the cloud and things, things like that, or if they, you know, various top-down initiatives that no, don't necessarily play well with traditional security policies. Um, yeah, you know. I think I think so to a point, but I think if we if we go back a little in time and we look at the genesis of the profession we currently know as quote unquote security, it, it's usually actually described as info security or infosec, which is kind of interesting. We'll get to that in a second. I think you know the reality is it's a very it's a very um, uh, immature profession if you want to call it that, and it actually stemmed out of um, in a very circuitous manner uh, a group of people that generally started their careers uh, and arrived at security as a focused discipline, if you want to describe it that way, out of folks that were once network administrators or system administrators or a combination of the uh, of the above. Uh, I think folks that have been in the security business for 20 plus years generally started earlier in their careers kind of being the jack of all trades. and either by default or expertise ended up kind of being the security guy. So prior to corporations connecting to the internet, uh, you know, we didn't, we, we thought about security as, as being this kind of isolated function where you, you kind of deal with access control and user enablement and, uh, you know, and the odd bit of, of audit and those sorts of things and compliance wasn't a huge driver. If you look at kind of where we were up to about four or five years ago, it became inverted, right? The the reality is, what, and, and the reason why po people became focused on quote unquote security was the number of requirements, the the 
the focus shifted and became much more distracted. And I, I have a slide in my presentations where I say, you know, there's no discipline to our discipline. The, the technologies, skill sets, and operational practices of somebody who really focuses on network security is very different than somebody that focuses on application security or information security, etc. So the grumpiness, I think, the the unenabling, disenabling, I don't really know what the word is, that, you know, that, that MORDAC um, preventer of, 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 of IT really comes from a, a set of requirements that has um, been driven more by compliance than uh, in, in many cases in security. And so the whole goal has morphed from, hey, how do we let these services and folks do what they need to do to get their business done to, geez, I'm in constant attack and onslaught. How can I make this less painful? And, um, you know, that, that has kind of unfortunately uh, given security a, a bad name, as has the people that have practiced it in some cases. But that's really starting, as I mentioned, the fact that security is it's coming back around again with things like virtualization and cloud computing, uh, software to find everything, to be more about how can security be a service that um, maybe isn't, I kind of chuckle at the security is an enabler part, um, mostly because security can be an enabler. Compliance isn't about enabling. Uh, and I think that's where the majority of the focus of our industry has been centered, which is compliance, not really security. Yeah, so I guess, you know, without um, sort of a mature approach uh, and, well, procedures and technology, for, uh, things like, you know, bring your own device just wouldn't be conceivable. Um, you know, going back, as you say, sort of five or ten years, um Connecting any of your own hardware to a, a corporate network in any way, shape, size, or form was just not going to happen. Um, so I guess the, the the potential attack surfaces must have changed considerably, and people have had to deal with um, just as much change in the security world as they have in the infrastructure world. Yeah, for sure. I mean, every, everything's an attack surface, right? But the the way in which we've We've organized and think of security. It's it's stick, not carrot. And there's there's some reasonable under, you know reasons why I think from the perspective of the model, um, you know you can talk about the oft used analogies of you know castle versus moat, those sorts of things. But they, they're kind of boring. That the reality is that there's a bunch of folks now. For example, at uh, uh, DerbyCon, a security conference that just happened this last week, um, saw the emergence of kind of a uh, a formation or a, a small movement within the security. Community, which is different than the security industry, but the community, uh, kind of based on the presentation that Josh Corman and uh, and Attrition gave, which was really focused on you know uh, the cavalry isn't coming; we are the cavalry. The only way that we can change the way in which security is perceived and operationalized is if we do it from the inside out. And there's a lot of chuckling and moaning about what that really means, but in some cases, it's being done for us. And so things like BYOD uh, ten years ago. There wasn't a lot of the compelling technology and even availability of technology where that was much of an issue. But now if you look at kind of where we are uh, and it's just accelerating, the, the notion of what we do and how we do it functionally, it, it has to change. And it's not about, you know, you could look at it as, as, as this kind of evangelistic way of talking about, oh, well, you know, security should be an enabler. Uh, and, uh, or you can just look at it as the reality is it, security is a feature. Uh, uh, oftentimes not built into the, the models and architectures, but in some cases we have an opportunity uh, when we're building new architectures, uh, new applications, new infrastructure to do things 
uh, enabled by technology that we haven't been able to do before from both a security and compliance perspective. So I think the timing is great to think about a renaissance in security. Um, not everyone's going to make that turn, clearly, but we've got a whole new generation of people that are kind of coming back to the do-it-all mentality that we had 20 years ago. Because now with things like DevOps and, you know, folk, uh, can, the, I don't like labeling people, but generations of folks that have grown up, you know, with, with iPads and laptops and cloud and the, the, the way they operationalize and think about um, delivering service is very different than the current generation. Do you think it's now that you know um, security is no longer an afterthought, a bit like you know, disaster recovery, where uh, traditionally people build an application or build a service and then suddenly think, right, oh, now we've got to back it up, or now we've got to secure it. That it's that services are being built with that high availability and security at the very core of the, the service. Um, I, I wish I could say that that is the case. I think that that the visibility toward needing to do that as a construct of building an architecture is, is, is certainly getting, it's getting better. But we have folks, you know, you kind of have to segment that question based on the maturity of the, of the audience to whom you're asking it. Um, certainly companies, if you look at, for example, Microsoft over the last 10 plus years who've been leading an effort uh, with their trustworthy computing um, programs on introducing, you know, better threat modeling, better software uh, uh, secure development lifecycle, um, thinking about security models. Uh, has uh, Efforts like that have generated, um, compared to where we were in the past, um, more uh, secure operating systems and applications. I'd say we're still a huge way off in, in being able to think about um, in a traditional enterprise not just bolting security on. That's still the model we have. But again, in many cases, it's not about security. The, the majority of the budgets that quote-unquote security departments um, leverage are based on compliance. I have to be PCI compliant, which means I need to buy these things to satisfy those bullet points, which gives me this much budget. Now, how crafty you are as a leader of a security organization that then applies in the guise of compliance building better frameworks and inter interactions between the developers and the administrators and security teams, that's the magic. And that's why you'll see some organizations more enlightened than others. Um, but you kind of have to wonder when you start segmenting the criticality and between something like a, an SME or an SMB, a small mom and pop organization versus a you know, mid-sized mid business to a large enterprise to critical infrastructure and government, the maturity curves, as well as the amount of dollars, as well as the kind of uh, threat models and resultant risk that emerge from from those models, are, are very different. And you know, uh, so the, the challenges overall, I would say, I think things have gotten better with respect to the question you asked about it not being bolted on versus baked in. But what we we're creatures of comfort, so we tend to try to replicate models that we're familiar with. And so, in many cases, even with cloud computing or virtualized infrastructure, what we see are people trying to they'll take okay. So we have a physical firewall. So all we do is make a virtual version of the physical firewall. Then we've succeeded, right? We just put a W in the mission accomplished. Um, no, not at all, because the operational models, the architectures, the apps have all changed, and generally you have a complete disconnect between them. So I, I wish I could have answered yes. I think we're getting more attention paid to stuff. But, you know, until I, I was at a security conference, actually, where I, 
I, I relegated the example or the analog to be that of the uh, KT boundary event, which is a when the meteorite 65 million years ago, the Cretaceous tertiary boundary hit the Earth and a pyroclastic ejector blocks out the sun, plants die, dinosaurs die, boom, entire kind of sea change, quite literally. And we're kind of waiting for that to happen where the generation that, that quite frankly now are the managers and architects that came out from 20 years ago that kind of perpetuate these design models um, and design patterns based on kind of the inside and out perimeter model, we're literally waiting for, the, for these people, me included, to die, <laughs> to retire, and a new generation of folks to, to basically have to deal with absorbing the debts of the past but starting to build architecture and applications that... Um, and security infrastructure doesn't look anything like what it looks like today. Um, boy, that's a long answer, but I mean, I think that's a realistic appraisal of where we are. It oh. sounds a lot like uh, the security part of this is pretty analog to the to the way vendors talk about cloudification of existing applications and things like that. Where yeah, great point. We kind of we kind of need to wait until the next generation of this stuff comes out, and then we'll have it, which. <laughs> Uh, which makes sense, sure. Uh, but there's a lot of legacy stuff out there. It, it's not going to get rewritten every bits and pieces of it, especially not in the in the smaller uh, in the smaller uh, environments. Yeah, which, or even bigger, or, or even bigger ones, right? Yeah, <laughs> Main, mainframes, mainframe apps. Yeah, roughly worse actually. But yeah, and and, and then we virtualize every, and everything now as by default without actually necessarily thinking about it. We just do it because that's how we do stuff. Right. And what does yeah. that do to the existing models that people have? Does it mean we're moving away from the traditional, you know, onion-shaped layered security model? Is it moving uh, no. to the break? No, you're just adding parsley. I mean, the, the reality is, the, the, you know, the onion model, I saw, I saw the CSO of a large organization the other day uh, talk about um, in, in, instead of layers, now we have circles. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, the that's just slicing the onion differently, sure. That's right, right. It, now, yeah, it, yeah, now it's, you know, it, it's the difference between, you know, uh, julianing versus dicing versus, you know, just making little concentric rings for onion rings. Uh, you know, I think the, the, the challenge is, it's all just <laughs> Well, abstraction has become a distraction. I have, that's one of my titles on my slides, which is we've become kind of obsessed with getting to the point where, like, like I mentioned, if you just virtualize stuff, you know, Tano, a miracle occurs, and then it's magically more secure. I think, it, to me, security is like, uh, and I've used this a lot, it's like an inflated balloon. The volume of the problem doesn't change, but when you squeeze it, you know, one side blurts out the other side. One, one problem looks smaller, but you've kind of transferred it to another. If you remember when virtualization, so compute virtualization from the server perspective first hit the, uh, hit the streets and started really gaining momentum, um, you know, we saw uh, an awful lot of the, the challenges and problems became less about technology and moving to virtual infrastructure as it was really operationally, which is uh, and, and compliance driven. Which is, man, I, you know, I've got a bunch of college grads that work for these accounting uh, and auditing companies that walk around with a, a checklist, and you know, they 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 literally kind of look at PCI section six six and say, "Thou must do this." And don't take into consideration because the audit standards and compliance requirements aren't up to speed with the technologies. And that's a tension that's existed for a very long time. But when you see disruption after disruption after disruption, if you think of the time frame, 
of compute network storage virtualization, uh, you know, NFV, SDN, cloud computing. In the last five years, we have fundamentally, not to mention the 20 new programming languages and architectures, uh, looking at Hadoop and all this other stuff uh, from the perspective of, of how IT has traditionally functioned, that amount of disruption in that short period of time is it, it, it's so compressed uh, that, you know, that, that time frame you talked about where the, the kind of transition uh, will take a, a long time. For some companies, they're, they're just not going to make that transition very easily, and they're going to have to look at, well, here's our brownfield existing environments, and here's what we'll try to do a better job with greenfield environments, and hope that the compliance in the middle meet, you know, meets them halfway. It, it's really... It's really a challenge. You know, you've got companies like Netflix who have the opportunity to reinvent themselves and their business models and how they deliver stuff. And they have really built an architecture that at least compared to today's standards, one could look at as a model for how you think about security and compliance. In five years, it may look completely different again, but the reality is not everyone gets the ability like a, uh, you know, to reinvent themselves and their processes and practices. And that's part of the problem. We've got to, we're going to continue to have to deal with the legacy stuff we have um, and and figure out without forklifts every five years how we're going to uh, make use of all this really really cool technology that in some cases you know the reason security looks like it's as backwards is because we're the last to last part of the discipline and, and chunk of IT to really focus on enabling automation uh, and uh, um, you know that's uh, that's that's a huge problem because everything else in IT is becoming automated and dynamic and programmatic uh, and security is very slow to catch up. When I think, think security, I, my mind kind of automatically goes to uh, network security. That's kind of uh, yeah. my, my instant thought is, okay, we're talking firewalls, we're talking ports, we're talking access lists. We're doing that kind of maneuver, maneuverability there. Uh, how With all this... And this is this is basically buzzword bingo. But with with this uh, uh, software defined storage things that are going on, can can that help us in a security way based on, on a networking side, or will that make it even more complicated to to make sure that you're in? Well, I guess in compliance, which isn't security, but still is in a way. So I'll, I'll just say yes. So again, depending on the maturity of of the team and teams. Um, you can start doing fantastic things that you've never been able to do before um, that enable also, I mean, in many cases, your observation is, very, is, is a very good one, and it's one I've made many times before, that for the most part, when we think about security, the majority of the controls we put in place are anchored and delivered by the network. So a firewall or an appliance that gets connected to the network, either inline, tap mode, Traffic makes its way to a device and it does something. Uh, the transition of late has been, well, we'll just make virtual versions of those. And But, but even the virtual networking components, V-switches and like, have been just as brittle for the most part, except you just deployed, you know, you, you get away from things like spanning tree and all the sorts of uh, elements we've had about poor network design when you when you look at, for example, the first gen of, of, of switching um, uh capabilities that VMware brought to town, right? It was very, very basic, uh, eliminated a lot of problems because they didn't really uh, make sense within a virtual context. But then you saw traditional uh, uh, networking vendors integrate uh, switching fabrics like the, um, like the 1000V from Cisco that did stuff that a basic V-switch didn't that you could layer stuff on top of. 
and that get gave you extra value and kind of clawed back some of that uh, networking functionality so that networking teams could make a more transparent connection between the physical and virtual networks and the stuff that hung off of it. Um, but but now, so we had physical networks and virtual networks, mostly mostly pretty brittle when you look at the larger ecosystem except for kind of a single vendor. And so that brittleness related or kind of constrained what you could or couldn't do. You were replicating just an appliance model in virtual form factor. And the problem is when you look at the the need when application architectures got to the point where now I could have you know, logical or I needed, you know, uh, L2 adjacency stretch over L3 uh, across data centers to, to allow application components that were more flat in nature to communicate with one another across segmented L2, L3 networks. And somehow I had to inject security capabilities in the middle of that. You could parlay that in virtual infrastructure or cloud. What you end up with is, is an investment of folks going, I can't get the scale, reach, and automated deployment where I attach a policy to a workload and it moves with it. So what do we do? We go back and we say, well, we're going to just put agents, HIPs, or HIDs, or host-based firewalls on the actual VMs themselves because that's the only way I can get the coverage and scale we need. That has fundamentally held back so much of our ability to move forward in both virtualized infrastructure and cloud that we've seen a poor adoption of virtual security products because we simply just didn't have that that fluidity. It was still brittly kind of anchored on, on, on this crappy network infrastructure from the perspective of, and I say crappy network infrastructure from the perspective of being able to be as fluid as the virtual uh, pieces. So now with kind of software-defined everything, network storage, whatever, the, the what, while you add complexity by adding layers of abstraction, right? So virtual networks on top of virtual networks on top of physical networks, and now you have to kind of figure, do I care if the physical and virtual interoperate so that I can kind of deal with it and tunnels all the way down? The reality is now I can kind of define by a high-level abstracted meta policy where or what sort of services I need, and then you kind of deliver those security services, those same virtual security services, and you do traffic steering and service insertion and stuff that we simply couldn't do before. Um, and, and so that's fundamentally exciting. And, and that, that gets us kind of to that next level of being able to think about how much security stuff is embedded in the virtual platforms themselves, how much of it exists in kind of user space virtual appliances, and how much of it is distributed in the VM guests, and how much of it is actually built into the applications. And as you move up stack from infrastructure-centric security to platform-as-a-service, where there aren't any VM container abstractions that you care about, how does security look in a software-defined blah, 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 um, when I don't have even those infrastructure hooks and the networks become even more abstracted? So that whole... I mean, that's happening right now. This isn't like, uh, I mean, uh, dealing with large enterprises and service providers right now that are completely and fundamentally turning themselves inside out and upside down to deal with, the, with that progression. So it's lots of good stuff, but yeah, lots of additional complexity, completely different operational models. Um, uh, you know, as a profession, the you know, I've been coaching security teams that you need to understand the software-defined whatever as well as understand these programmatic and application architectures and DevOps models because the you know we're not going to wait another 65 million dollars or 65 million years for a for a uh, uh, one of these events it, it's going to happen in the next you know 10 years or so it's happening now it's just happening slowly so I suppose that covers the the third bit I mean in any sort of problem there's sort of process technology and finally people um, and is is people that are the weak link in it you know are people 
um, infosec professionals hinging on you know qualifications which may have been or certifications which may be less relevant uh, because they were based around that legacy sort of compliance based checkbox security. Um, is there a case for new you know sort of alternatives to the uh, is it C CISP? Yeah, actually, they're already emerging. They're actually emerging. So the Cloud Security Alliance has the CCSK, which is their cloud security uh, certification. IFC squared is uh, rumored, if not already proceeding, with building a certification specific to cloud. The interesting thing about you know cloud-specific or virtualization-specific security is you can think of it within the context of being this massively different set of problems. But in some cases, I'd suggest that the security problems you're trying to solve are inherently the same. If you boil it down to kind of confidential integrity, availability, non-repudiation, et cetera, and you look at what we have to do and you build threat models and you understand what you're trying to protect against what, fundamentally, security is security. You just have to kind of slice and dice it based on what you're trying to protect and how much you're willing to spend and what the result and impact is if, if something bad happens. Cloud virtualization, software-defined whatever, it are simply variables within the deployment models specific to how you're deploying your apps. So there is a need for education. There is a need for technology. There's a, re there's a reason to even have new certifications that bring better visibility into the problems and challenges people may have in using these new deployment models. But they're operations models. Uh, you know, we you can look at the same progression from when we had mainframes and minis and then client server and then, you know, uh, and, and remember when you had that battle between, you know, Novell as a network, quote-unquote, operating system and all the security specialization that went around being a, uh, a Novell certified uh, uh, administrator that in included networking and storage and everything else. And then Microsoft and client server and, you know, that, that whole build-up operating systems and then the Internet and web-based, you know, web-based apps and now cloud-based apps. Uh, all of these things are natural progressions. They've been happening for lots of different cycles. So while we get wrapped up and we stare at belly buttons and kind of think, oh, my God, this is so different, it is and it isn't. Um, yeah, there's always going to be skills that you have to brush up on. The, the point is, in many cases, in large enterprises, the security teams could, for the most part operationally, continue to do what they're doing, except they're going to be so overwhelmed given the massive amount of scale that if they continue to operate like they have to be a functional meat cloud, um, and, and, and what I mean by that is if they don't leverage and utilize automation the same way that the application developers and server administrators are, they're going to have a very hard time accomplishing their mission. Um, yeah, I mean, because security sort of, in, you know, it has had a lot of um, focus in the uh, in the media recently, and uh, not all not all of it sort of uh, necessarily particularly positive. Uh, do you think that that's affected the way that what are the, the ramifications going to be of that sort of back into the enterprise? Yeah, you know, I, I I forgot to mention something before, right? There's there's security and there's compliance and my other ticket button is, is kind of privacy. Um, three of those things can be talked about as mutually exclusive uh, elements. They're interrelated for reasons I think are pretty reasonably uh, pretty clear. But um, there's a lot of emotional churn surrounding um, kind of uh, people's expectations of, and remember when uh, Scott Manili from Sun said, uh, you know, privacy's dead, get over it or something like that. Uh, um, this is, you know, 
the, the notion that we're things like the NSA and prison and, and privacy and snooping and you know these activities have been going on for a very long time. Uh, I think the key element we've been talking about here is really visibility, understanding, uh, and transparency of uh, of uh, and, and expectations thereof of of um, people's you've kind of got the tin tin hat tinfoil hat group and then you've got folks that kind of trade off security and privacy for convenience and I'd say that the the uh, it, most of the world trades off uh, security and privacy for convenience and myself included uh, as do most people when they use and think about you know their their home life and and all of the services and things they're willing to do to um, you know to, to be able to Make use of a new technology or service, regardless of how secure and secure it may be, or whether you even read the end user license agreement. So I think, you know, I think certainly things like Prism and and all of the the surveillance stuff that is coming to light, you'll get two crowds of pe people. One that say, "Oh my God, this is an outrage," and you know, we should take back our government and etc., which is you know a, a valid and reasonable um, kind of one of the seven stages of grief and there's a bunch of folks that say how could you not know that this was going on right uh yeah. you know i minority reported in the movie it's it's real life and so i think somewhere in between there is an interesting balance that certainly has contributed to more perception issues where now security teams will use privacy in the same way they've used uh uh compliance and there will be more money available as you can already see in the market there is uh, for folks that are focusing on ensuring things like confidentiality and privacy uh, whether it's crypto based or not so <laughs> when working with an agency like like the NSA it's almost it's almost you can only be best effort in something that you're doing security wise I mean chances are they've got their hooks into whatever so it's it's mainly best effort as far as I'm concerned. Well, it's not just the NSA. Frankly, with the advanced adversaries that we have today, it's it's relatively safe to say without any amount of FUD at this point in time that if you, as an individual, no matter how talented you may be, are, are targeted, uh, there is for any number of, of reasons, whether it's extraction of private data, whether you're kind of used as a mule for stepping stone attacks, uh, you know, chances are that if somebody really, really, if an, ad, an adversary, uh, a determined adversary, wants to affect harm or use you in a way in which, um, you know, you you think you're reasonably protected against the chances are that um, he or she as, a, as an adversary will be able to accomplish that goal. Um, we've seen that time and time again against folks that we would think um, uh, should be better prepared. And, and I mean, that goes everywhere from kind of operational security, like we saw with uh, the leaks internally uh, by the NSA, as well as their, um, uh, you know, as well as their operational uh, models and both law enforcement and, and uh, intelligence community folks that are, are kind of um, now being disclosed as being uh, kind of standard operating procedures. So yeah, if somebody... Best effort is, is all we can ever do. It's basically making sure that your threat models are reasonably well attuned to understanding what happens when something bad happens, when when the unexpected occurs outside of your ability to defend. That's that's the real test of whether or not you're resilient, is your ability to uh, recover and continue operating. I mean, this is a very military-centric kind of model that's been, you know, um, uh, continuous, you know, continuous operations models have been in place for a very long time, and they operate based on some real kinetic 
uh, effects of badness happening. You know, people die. Uh, you know, in, in the enterprise, uh, you know, generally that's not part of the threat model. Sometimes it is, but uh, you're absolutely right. The reality is, if you operate from the context that you're already compromised or that you will be, and your most important assets are exposed, and or um, you know, whether you're talking about availability, confidentiality, integrity, doesn't really matter. What would, you know? How would you operate differently? And folks like the Jericho Forum have been uh, putting forth models to accommodate the fact that if you went to a person or a company and said, "You take your most important asset and you stick it directly connected to the internet," uh, what would you do differently? You know, it's funny. People's answers to that is, "Oh, I do A, B, and C, and blah blah blah." And then you say, "Well, what do you do?" And I said, "Well, not A, B, and C." And like, why not? It's like, we don't have any money to do that, or it's not my compliance, whatever. So the interesting thing is, I think these threat models and people coming face to face with the fact that the the threat actors themselves are very different, and the adversaries are are uh, are more skilled. If you you know, that's a that's a that's a wake up call for a lot of people even security professionals who think they've done a reasonably good job in protecting their infrastructure and assets. I think that uh, it, the, the whole prison Edward Snowden thing uh, wasn't really that surprising. Uh, as you said, uh, how could you not know, in a way? But I think exactly. most, most people don't. Most people don't understand. And this is, I'm generalizing a lot here, but most people who don't work with InfoSec or work with uh, computer stuff normally don't understand that when they sign up for, to Facebook, for instance, and, and, and give away all their, the data they want to give away, which is what they do, they don't understand that they're the product in that way. So yeah. the thing is, I, I think that the whole NSA PRISM thing uh, might act, actually act as some kind of wake-up call for a lot of people who never had envisioned that something like this would could ever possibly happen. That, that no one would be interested in looking at them. And, and, and a lot of... And that that kind, of, kind of makes me transition to the next thing, is that the people who want to hide their activities are the ones that are trying to actually do that. People who don't want to hide their activities or don't feel that they have a need to hide their activities, they don't. Uh, and, and, and it's not that if you don't have anything to, to hide, you, sh you shouldn't be afraid, because you should be, because you never know what the data is going to be used for. But isn't a, a large-scale surveillance, surveillance operation like that most likely to pick up Lots and lots of lots of irrelevant data for a lot of people who aren't really interesting for anyone. Uh, probably. I mean, we we heard we heard details, uh, for example, from General Alexander on, on what he suggested they uh, they collected and for how long and against whom, and then we saw uh, things uh, that were leaked that seemed to conflict with. Those statements, uh, you can certainly make the comment and/or question around who you know. Who do you believe in that regard? Um, I'm uh, I, I have my opinions, and I'm not necessarily going to inflict them on anybody. But the the point is, I think you know, not knowing versus not wanting to know are two very different things, and it goes back to us talking about the trade-off of of um, 
convenience over security. I think this is another generational issue that we speak of that will over time probably shift again, meaning today we talk about a generation like I have four kids and we talk about that generation just, quote, not caring about privacy. I, I think that's actually an, an inaccurate and slightly ignorant statement. I, I think it's not that they don't care about privacy. They haven't been given a real good reason in the trade-off for the for the convenience they receive to care about privacy, or at least to find it in the same way. And so we've seen a whole bunch of folks oversharing, not re not necessarily realizing that that oversharing was contributing or being monitored by people they didn't expect. I think with with disclosures like we've just seen, um, those folks will change. Um, even if it's for a, a second, they'll pause and or over time, um, they will push back on um, that, uh, their objections if they have them to, to that level of, um, of surveillance uh, or not. But the reality is I think in, in, in whether you'll see a whole sea change in the way in which people think about and expect privacy, um, especially given how more and more things are being connected. So, you know, pretty soon, right now, we've got to worry about, you know, email and phone calls and instant messaging and, uh, you know, web-based web, web, web -based traffic and, and the like. Uh, pretty soon, you know, your toaster and coffee pot and refrigerator and car and everything else will be uh, interconnected and exchanging data using those same networks. And so there'll be even more data available. So back to the question you raised before about integrating security architecture more profusely and explicitly uh, into some of these designs. The funny thing is, I made the, the I, I had a joke that my buddy Christian Riley always repeats, I made it kind of in passing in Starbucks one day where I said, you know, cloud computing is the revenge of of VPN and PKI, and the, and what I meant by that from a security perspective is that, you know, our answer and Gunnar Peterson, another buddy of mine, did a great kind of had this chart of evolving development languages over time from like the 80s to now, and what we've seen is with the iteration of every new architecture, you know, networking consumption model, uh, etc., that the the kind of answer from the security industry has always been some some version of firewalls and SSL or in, kind of back to my statement, VPN and PKI. And the reality is now the real challenge is we find out that the fundamental cryptography that we're relying upon to keep things private and confidential um, have been usurped by these same agencies that have essentially inserted backdoors, which makes it really, really difficult to say, to go back to the model of, oh, we'll just add firewall and SSL when the mechanisms by which industry is building solutions are themselves corrupted and compromised. So I think we'll see uh, uh, some very interesting revisitation of how we think about the practical applications of cryptography uh, in ways that um, in, in the next five years or so may, may, may fundamentally uh, allow us to kind of uh, get to a model where we have um, different threat models and, um, uh, and thoughts about how we're going to protect uh, our, our information going forward. Yeah, and it goes even deeper than that. I mean, you don't even have to use a computer. Look at checking in at a in an airline or when you buy anything, something like that. I once had a situation where I checked into. I, I fly back and forth between Europe and Asia a lot, and I I flew back to the U.S. and I had a situation where I was actually stopped and questioned about it for about an hour. Awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> By the Department of Homeland Security. And that's, I mean, that's, I, I didn't even, they didn't even have any other data except where I was going and who I was. And maybe one or two other creepy things that I'm not sure how they knew.
<laughs> uh, like I'm saying, yep. it, you don't even have to use a computer. It's still, uh, that data still creates. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, look, before we end this on a, on a terribly somber note about how, you know, we're doomed and, and there's, you know, if there's, you know, I think that we have an opportunity as an industry and I've talked about several opportunities and maybe why in many cases back to being pragmatic and I'm not sure I, I'd say I'm positive or, or more upbeat, but certainly I try to kind of keep a pragmatic the reason I call my blog Rational Survivability is I try to kind of look at this, these, if, if you just look at the minima and maxima, you're just going to, it's you're going to be bipolar, right? You're going to be thrilled one minute and completely wanting to kill yourself the next. So trying to kind of smooth the curves out and taking the middle road and looking at where we are and how we can make improvements and fundamentally as an industry and a community, how we can, back to your first question, Maybe we won't be an enabler, but we should certainly think about lessening the height of our speed bumps. The way we do that is fundamentally thinking differently about how we go about doing what we do and why and with what. Uh, and and that, that's going to take a while. Um, but, you know, there's lots of great people in this industry who have been in it for a long time, as well as in the community, uh, who recognize that we fundamentally have to change because... Now, when a developer can pull out his Amex card and go spin up, you know, a whole bunch of infrastructure, quote unquote, uh, in in Amazon Web Services or name your cloud provider, and put in, you know, put up an application that's really adding value to a company or its customers or its shareholders, is it has it gone through audit and code review and security? No. Does it generate revenue and does it add, um, you know, value? Uh, yes. Who do you think is going to win that battle ultimately? It depends on the size of your compliance club and whether or not you think about the next time instead of him going around you, he involves you to make sure that his I's are dotted and his T's are crossed. That's what these next-gen companies or these generation of companies that are employing these new operational models, whether you want to call it DevOps or not, have done to stop being a giant speed bump or, or the you know, MORDAC. Um, they just realize that security is a, an important feature that needs to be accounted for, and you know they are trying to do their best to, to be part of the process, not to, not one that stops the process. Well, with that in mind, let's wrap up uh, VSoup number thirty-eight. Thanks a lot, uh, Hoff, for being on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, guys. It was fun. I think. <laughs> yeah, a lot of lot of good information. As usual, you can catch us on Stitcher, iTunes, or VSoup.net. <laughs>